This is Commerce Shenanigans, episode 382, A Conversation with Zeb Wells. Welcome to the Commerce Shenanigans podcast. This is episode 382, and it's our conversation with Zeb Wells episode. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. Uh, today, as I said, we speak with Zeb Wells, who's written some great stuff um, for Marvel Comics in the last, uh, I guess, 10, 10 or so years, uh, 10, almost 15 years, actually. Uh, he's written some great material. He's written some of my favorite stuff. Um, he's written Daredevil, Batlin, Jack Murdoch, an amazing Marvel Knights miniseries uh, from about... I think it's almost like 10 years ago, but it's just an amazing book with Carmine DJ Domenico. Uh, it's well worth picking up and, and reading. Um, he's written some just amazing stuff. He wrote the acclaimed, uh, or at least I think it's acclaimed, Dark Knight, uh, sorry, Dark Rain Electro miniseries, um, which is very well done as well. Anyways, he's just a great writer, really great guy. We had a fantastic conversation talking about his career in comics, uh, which we'll be following just in a second. You can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also listen to us on Stitcher. Upcoming episodes, we'll have conversations with Tony Bedard, as well as an episode with uh, John Semper Jr. from the Spider-Man animated series and an upcoming writer for DC Comics. Uh, So that'll be coming up in the next couple of weeks. Um, In the meantime, enjoy this fantastic episode with Zeb Wells. Zeb, welcome to Comic Shenanigans. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. We're very excited to have you on the show today. Uh, I used to ask the question, which is kind of the um, a very trite question, which is, you know, how did you first get into comics, etc. But what I've started doing instead is asking, when you're at conventions or when you're signing stuff, what is the most common thing people ask you to sign first? Oh, yeah. It's, it's by far the one of the two Carnage miniseries that I did with Clayton Crane, which I did not see coming, but I think... I think there was something about matching, uh, you know, Clayton's artwork to that character, which is the reason I wanted to do the book in the first place was a chance to work with him and then a chance to work with him with characters that I thought really suited his art style. And apparently people agree because that is far and away what I get uh, pushed across at me at conventions. What's the, uh, I guess, on the other end, what's the one you're most surprised that people even ask to be, uh, to be signed? Uh, it's probably the, uh, the second thing I did, which was the uh, Peter Parker Spider-Man uh, 42 and 43. With the Sandman, which, right? With the Sandman uh, where Spider-Man goes to the beach to some sort of MTV-type um, spring break beach party, which I'm always surprised... That people, because there was such a negative reaction to it at the time, that I'm surprised people still bring it up. I was just in line to see um, Civil War, actually, and I never, ever get recognized, ever. But somebody was there and recognized me and said, hey, man, really loved Peter Parker, Spider-Man, 42, 43. And that was a complete shocker. So not, not only were you recognized, but he brought up the book that you that you uh, least expect someone to ask you about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, or you know, you could add, you could add Snake Woman to that list. I can't remember how many issues of Snake Woman I did, but uh, but that's one I never expect or or particularly want anyone to know about. Okay. Fair enough. Well, let's let's go back to the begin the beginning. Then, where does your your story with comics start? When did you first start reading? 
I think I was in kindergarten. Well, I, no, I couldn't read in kindergarten. So probably first grade, we had a a couple of college guys that were living in our basement or renting out the basement of the house we were living in. And when they moved out, he left me. Uh, one of the one of the guys left me a box of comics, and it had a bunch of. It had a bunch of Silver Age DC comics in there, but then it had a lot of of just the original run of Spider-Man. And I think the one I remember the most was that giant size Amazing Spider-Man number one where he first fought the Sinister Six, which I don't know if you've ever read it, but it, you know every time he meets one of these villains, it's a big splash page of the, of the villain, which mm-hmm. is practically, you know, like a poster. And, you know, that's just... For a six, for a six seven year old, that that was just like crack, you know. That's <laughs> all those all those Spider Men really sucked me in, and and, it, and it's really strange how I don't know something about the DC comics. They all seemed too complicated for me, or I I couldn't figure out what the continuity was, hmm. even though I you know would have no idea what that what that word even meant. But it's it's funny how how so early. You can either become a DC or a Marvel guy, and I just responded so much more to the Marvel universe, the Marvel characters, mm-hmm. and I read those. And then, and then a couple years later, we moved from Kansas to Colorado, and I think I was having like super anxiety about the move. This is all in hindsight, of course, and. And I think the one thing I could remember about that Kansas house were those comic books. So I kind of got into this unhealthy obsession with comics that uh, that has lasted my entire life. Because they represented you know, your childhood in Kansas? Yeah, I think so. And but, and then, of course, you know, you get older and you start reading. And then the first time I read Watchmen, you know, I'll never forget that just because I, I couldn't believe a human being had written that <laughs> or how, you know, like how you could get smart enough to actually write something like that. And of course, I think me and a, and a lot of other writers are still trying to figure that out. How old were you in the first I read Watchmen? Oh man, I, be, I I think I was in high school, so I was probably fourteen, fourteen or fifteen. Wow, that's a. I guess I mean I I came into it late. When, um, I don't think I read Watchmen until I was in in university. So I think. You know, it, it very much changed a lot of things for me in terms of what I thought comics could be. So it's interesting to hear someone who read it a little bit younger, and it already yeah. kind of had that huge, that huge um, kind of shift. Yeah, I, I, I think it was the same. I had the same feeling. I probably just thought about it differently. I just, I just, yeah, like I said, was a little because everyone tells you how good Watchmen is, and then you read it and you're like, oh my god, this is this is really good. But I had, I, you know, when I was in junior high, it used to be a situation where my parents would have to drive me to downtown Denver to uh, Mile High Comics, which was a, you know, it was just a long drive. So maybe one Saturday out of every month, if I had done something great, they would take me to the comic store and then I would have to go to the grocery store. I almost want to know what the something great had to be. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I don't even remember it because it did not happen very often. <laughs> and so it was mostly about you know going to the Seven Eleven or the grocery store and trying to find those co- 
once, but as soon as I went to junior high, uh, a guy, uh, Sean Carey, opened up a comic book store right next door to the junior high. So that sort of changed my entire world because then he couldn't really get rid of me because I was in there. I, I would spend hours in there just talking about comics. And then my parents had a copying machine which not a lot of people had back there, back then. And he started doing a newsletter, and so he would let me make copies of this newsletter for him, and I would get store credit from him for oh, doing that. Nice. And so that, that allowed me to sort of, you know, that's probably why I read Watchmen earlier than someone else might have, because I, had, I, I sort of had this pipeline of comics. I could, I could afford to read a bunch more than, than I could actually afford because of this after-school job he had given me. Nice. Now, when did you decide, you know, I, I'm going to write these things? Like, it's one thing to, you know, you're obsessed with them, you, you love reading them, but when did you decide, I can actually write these on my own? Well, I didn't really ever decide that. <laughs> I, I was a big fan of Wizard Magazine, which a lot of people were back then that was sort of where you got your you know if you couldn't afford to read all these comic books you could at least read wizard magazine and keep track of what was happening in the comic book world and they had a video making contest where you could make a short video uh, you know ashamed like uh i think they were i think they were asking for a five minute comedy video or maybe they were just asking for a video but you know like me and my friends like a bunch of bunch of friends back then we were making um just dumb little videos to send around and i had just learned one of the one of the earlier non-linear editing systems at college and i had a friend that looked just like the incredible hulk so <laughs> we we painted him up green and made a video about the incredible hulk having been fired looking for a real job out in the real world and it ended up winning the contest and for the the contest allows you to fly to a comic convention. You get to it was Chicago Comic Con at the time, and then they would do the Wizard Fan Awards. So the whole industry was there, and then they show then they showed the video in front of the whole industry, which wow. was like a massive thrill for me because I was meeting these these professionals that I had grown up loving and they and they all thought the video was funny so they were you know they it just gave us something to talk about you know they'd come up to me to compliment the video you know i met jill thompson and brian azarello and they were super cool to me and mark wade and just a lot of people that you know it, it was like a sports fan being able to meet all of his favorite um players at once and then the next year I had just gotten out of college and had nothing going on. And so I was still painting houses. And so we decided to enter the contest again. We did, this time, we still used the Hulk guy, but we did the real world Metropolis. <laughs> and, you know, the bad, slightly back before that idea was terribly tired. I'm sure it's it was still a little tired when we did it. It was like 2000, I think year 2000. And that ended up winning again, and this time when we went, it was right after or around the time when Joe Casada had really taken over 
Marvel and Axel Alonso was there. And this time I got to go up and give a speech when I accepted the, the award. And I knew enough, I knew enough about comic books and the backstory. And so I was able to like make little jokes about what, uh, what Brian Bendis and what Casada and what, uh, Axel were doing at Marvel. And I think they, uh, they ended up liking that. And then the next day, I heard that Axel was looking for me and completely freaked out and <laughs> went and found him and he asked me if I would like to write an issue of Spider-Man's Tangled Web. And so, then, you know, and of course, I was not going to say no to that. No. But <laughs> at the same time, having, having not honed my comic book writing skills... It was a little intimidating at the same time because I took comic books so seriously and thought that they were, you know, they, they, they were something great. So when I sat down to write this issue of Tangled Web, it was like, well, this is a, this has got to be the best issue of Tangled Web anyone has ever seen, you know. And I think putting that much pressure on me was, was probably not the most healthy thing that early in my career. What do you, do you? When was the last time you you read that issue just to kind of see if it holds up? Uh, I it's probably been it's it's been years for sure, and I think the last time I read it, I did still like it, but it was very wordy, <laughs> you know. And, and I think that's I think that's something that that a lot of first time writers or or you know greener writers do. And, and everything's wordy, and, and some of them stay wordy, and that's fine because that's their style. But I think as as my career went forward, I started having fun, and especially if you know the artist you're going to be working with, and you can you can sort of gear your script towards the artist, which is what I love to do, and which was the most exciting part about my job. Then I, I like to see how little you can get away with, you know. Mm-hmm. You want to see how much meaning you can pack into the shortest statement, and so that's what. And those are the comics I like to read now as well. It's like what things have been, and I think that in order to do that, you have to. Uh, in general, there's exceptions to all of these. Of course, everything I'm going to say, but in general, I think to make something that's packed with ideas that has minimal words in it, you need to think about it a lot longer than if you just sit down and have your characters start talking about what they're doing and why they're doing it. You know, that's the biggest bummer <laughs> for me is when is when I end up having to bail and have my character tell you why they're doing something or what they're doing. You know, when I haven't been able to find that thing that I can show them doing that just sort of makes you feel how they feel in that moment. And I think that's why Electra for me towards the end of my comic book career was sort was my favorite thing because with Electra I for some reason don't like Electra to talk. I like it when you have to she's an enigma and you have to sort of ask yourself what must be going on in her head. And I and I like thinking that what is going on in her head is more complex than we than something more complex than what we could sum up in a caption or a word balloon. 
so I don't want to insult what's going on in her head by having her tell you what it is. And so that was a fun game for me to see how little, because it's not like she's mute, she can talk, but I wanted to see how little dialogue I could get away with with her. It felt weird every time I gave her a piece of dialogue, it felt weird, and I had failed on some level. It's interesting that you say that because I'm I'm thinking of the different times of you know Electra's been written over the years, and you're right that you know sometimes the some of the best moments are the ones that have been most impactful from various different writers are actually the ones where she doesn't say anything at all. Yeah, Um, exactly. She's she's super effective as a force of nature who sort of comes in and 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 just does what she is going to do, like pure will, you know, like pure force of will. That's how I like thinking about her. And I think, you know, uh, Frank Miller's Electra Assassin, I don't know how much you, I, I can't remember, but the feeling I have from that book is that she's, she's a force of nature, a force of will, and you don't necessarily learn why she's doing everything. You just know that she's going to do it. And I don't know if you've, you've read that recently, but every time I read that, that is actually up there with Watchmen for me as far as a, dear God, how did something get this close to incoherence <laughs> and but be able to hold itself together? Because that's like when things get really genius, you know, when they are when they are so out there and so wild. But by the end of it, everything has tied in together and made sense. There's not one word in that thing that doesn't need to be there. But there are times when you think you're reading complete insanity and then suddenly you get to the end of the issue and everything makes sense when you read it again. And uh, so that that's another thing that really stuck with me. So when I got the chance to write Electra, even though I had heard interviews where Frank Miller said, you know, Electra's dead, I had a deal with Marvel. Marvel should should keep her dead. There was a part of me that wanted to honor that because I respected what he had done with that character so much. But there was another obviously bigger part of me that wanted to try to do justice to that character. Mm-hmm. So I ended up I ended up like selling out a little bit or selling out some of my morals just in order to get my hands on that character and and, and tell some stories with her. Which I think is sort of poetic in a way because that, that Electra should be that alluring, you know, that you're willing to you're willing to give up something to 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 get a chance to play with her. Well, not only that, you also got to have her face off against Bullseye, which is a nice yeah a nice thing to be able to do because I mean those characters are always going to be linked together. Yeah, absolutely. And the idea that somebody was going to write that series, you know, and. And I just wanted, you know, I just wanted it to be me. So I hopped on it. I sold out and I hopped on it. <laughs> well, no, let's let's jump forward to Electra then. So when when the Dark Rain Electra miniseries was, I guess, pitched, um, you know, was it something where you had been pitched it directly for it, or they knew they were going to have an Electra series and they had kind of people pitching for it? Like, how was that process? I think Steve Steve Wacker came to me and said we are doing a, uh, an Electra a series, a Dark yeah, a dark Rain Electra series, and I cannot remember if I had done, I don't 
think I had done anything with Electra before that, or, but, but I must have mentioned to him that I liked her or tried or, or tried to bring her. Or maybe I'm misremembering something, but there was some reason that he knew that that I would want to do that, or I'm misremembering and it was completely random. So that's <laughs> that's that's how these things are going to work. Um, it might have been completely random, but you know, I I knew. You sit there, and, and Electra had come back to life, and you see all this this stuff happening to Electra, and you know she's a, she's a scroll, she's not a scroll. Enemy of the state had happened. I thought uh, Mark Miller wrote a great Electra, and I and what I wanted to do was I wanted to take all of that stuff and sort of funnel it down and whittle it down, and not pretend like it didn't happen, but sort of process it so. At the tail end of this series, all of the all of those things that had happened had sort of been rectified to the Electra that I thought was Electra, and then someone would you know then if you did go forward from that series, you'd have a you'd have a statement, or or you'd at least have my statement on what that character was going forward, and so you wouldn't have to think about that other stuff anymore. You you, you wouldn't have questions about. When, when did she turn into a scroll? When was she a scroll and when was she not a scroll? You could just read this and then going forward just enjoy the character. What made you come up with the uh, the phrase not even the stars are safe in the sky? Uh, you, you know, just just pure panic. That's just what most, most of this stuff is. Because it's a great recurring phrase. I mean, it really, by the end of that series, like it's, it's, a, it's almost haunting in the way that it's used. So I'm just always curious how you kind of came up with, of, with that specific phrase because it really did work throughout the series. Yeah, it's, it was just, it was, it was sitting down and trying to think of a phrase that did all of those things. And it was, you know, it's one of those phrases where, where I wrote it down and I thought, well, of course, I'll come up with something better at some point but that's what I'll use for now and then you get to the end of the fir- of the first issue you use it in and you're like well well maybe it is you know it starts feeling normal and you're like oh maybe it is working and maybe maybe that is a, a great way to do that but it did it is just you know, you know a lot of this it is just throwing shit at the wall and then <laughs> suddenly su- suddenly something clicks now, when you worked on Electra, you worked with Clay Mann. What was the uh, the collaboration process like between you two? Well, you know, it was a lot of it was it was just a, a little bit of back and forth about what we thought the character was, and there, you know, there was me sort of explaining that her default setting should be not not betraying anything <clears throat> on her face. You know, she doesn't. She doesn't give anything away. She doesn't let you see what is going on in her mind unless she has to. You know, she would never show that she's she's in effort unless she's in great effort and she has to show that. She would never show that she's in pain unless she's in great pain and then she would show just a little bit of that. And then after that, it was just writing the script and I, and I think that he... He really nailed it. You know, all, all the action was fairly well detailed and he would elaborate on it when he needed to, when he felt he needed to for clarity. But I think there, there was a lot of a lot of dialogueless action scenes that needed to work. And 
you know, I can write those as detailed as I want, but if the artist can't process that and make it make sense for them, it's not going to come through. So he was just a great collaborator in that regard where he was able to understand what I was writing because sometimes it barely makes sense to me and process that and, and actually make it something that makes sense visually. Was the Dark Rain miniseries meant to lead into a new ongoing? I don't think... Well, I think I think that was the... Because it definitely feels like it, it resets the character, as you said. Like, it kind yeah. of sets her up so that whenever someone wants to use her, they can. And it kind of cleans up, you know, any potential messes left over from Secret Invasion. But, like, it's just interesting that you, you do this amazing setup miniseries to really get the character back on her feet. And then we didn't see her for a few years. Yeah, I think that that was the goal, and I do think that there were whispers of a, of a regular lecture series, and I do know that that was sort of <clears throat> one of the dreams that Steve Wacker had. That was definitely one of his goals, and I know that during those two years, there were a couple of starts and stops. I actually remember, I think that when that Electra ongoing finally got greenlit, we... I was dusting off an old uh, an old pitch at that point, an old pitch that I had probably written a couple times, where it was close to going. So over that two years, an Electra ongoing was definitely a goal that Steve had, and definitely something that I wanted to do. And uh, and then it just took him two years. You know, he just had to be in the right meeting at the right time, where they were looking for the right thing, where he could sort of pitch that pitch that in and get it greenlit and eventually he did now you, you also got to write the character in the shadowland one shot yes what was it like writing her in that which is a, a very different not a very different version of the character but obviously in a very different place yeah it was it was fun because you know there was a lot there was a lot going on in that shadowland story but I don't think something that we had seen was what is Electra's relationship with Matt Murdock at the moment, or or maybe we had seen that and but we hadn't seen my version of that, or what, or or you know, or what, you know, it, it must be shocking that you run into a writer with an ego. I'm sure you're you're reeling right now, but. But I, I, I just wanted to know, and I kind of I wanted to, to know, what, because because Daredevil died, doesn't he get stabbed in that? Or he kills somebody, he kills Bullseye yeah. in that story. And so I thought that what Elektra seeing this character who she had kind of, you know, I, I feel like she has probably kind of in her heart of hearts wished he would go over to the dark side a little bit because if he went over to the dark side a little bit, maybe they could be together again. And maybe maybe she just wishes that like way deep down or maybe that's like a wistful notion to her. So her seeing Daredevil actually kill someone, what what is her reaction to that? And so that was, that was the starting point of the story. And I thought that that, that would give it some sort of emotional reason for being. And then and then with Electra, the other thing I, I like to do is just come up with some crazy action for her to do. 
and I thought it was it would be fun to go back and forth and show that when she was talking to her her master in those in those vision states, she was incapacitated in her physical form, and so she was constantly coming out of these vision states that she didn't really have power over and having to to deal with the consequences mm-hmm. of you know if, if that happened in the middle of a fight she would have to deal with it i want to go back again um so let's talk about uh your run on peter parker spider-man because you did those f- first two issues and then you did land the regular gig afterwards so obviously yeah. those, those two issues were were strong enough to uh have them give you another shot at it yeah yeah and that was great that that allowed me, you know, it was great, but yeah, it, but it was also it was all still really scary. It was all, and and I think if you read those issues, you you see me trying, you know, trying to figure out what my voice is or or what I want to do. I thought that I think eventually I thought that, and maybe after that run, I thought that maybe I was leaning too far on dialogue and leaning too far on trying to come up with cute jokes or or interesting takes on character, which I do think is super valuable. But I think after that run, I started wanting to focus on plot and seeing, seeing how I could more intersect character and the plot to make the plots more complex. But I do think that was one of the first times where, you know, at the end of that run, I got to work with Sam Keith which was amazing, an, an amazing opportunity. And one of those first times where I was really able to say, oh, well, what kind of story, what kind of Spider-Man story is Sam Keith's art trying to tell? Or what, what would be fun for him? And I thought going back to the Sandman would just suit his art style well. And... And that, that was, so that was one of the first stories where I felt like even though I wasn't on the phone with Sam all the time, it was a real collaboration with the artist simply because I was letting that artist's artwork inform what I was doing and what I was writing. Hmm. Uh, how did you pitch the um, Behind the Mustache story in Tangled Web? I It's a great not... story. Yeah, I do not remember if Axel had that idea. I think Axel might have had that idea of what does J. Jonah Jameson in therapy look like? <laughs> and and why does he go there? And and I think that I think that the challenge of writing that was that something had happened where it was one of those comic book things where there was a big chunk of years where J. Jonah Jameson's father had been named this, and then there was a big chunk of years where J. Jonah Jameson's father had been named something else and had a different personality. And then a couple of months earlier, Ron Zimmerman had written a J. Jonah Jameson story where J. Jonah Jameson's father was abusive and so that was fresh enough that we couldn't really we couldn't really contradict it. And so I think in that story, he's you know he the thing that we came up with just for the sake of continuity was that 
he had a stepfather and a father, and his real father was one way and his stepfather was another way. Hmm. And so there was, a, there was a little continuity gymnastics that would probably stick out to me like a sore thumb if I read it again. <laughs> but I, I, did, I did think that that came together decently. I did think that the J. Jonah, J. there's something about the abusive father trope that I think that you need to, you know, you need to do really well, but I, I've somehow been backed into writing that trope so many times simply because of, of continuity mm. that it's, it's sort of become this thing that I have to find a fun, ta- <laughs> that sounds terrible, a fun take on the abusive father. Um, but that's something that we ended up having to do on Battling Jack as well. Like something to make that, something that's become sort of a cliche, which is the drunk, abusive father. Mm-hmm. But is it cliche because it's very real and does happen all the time? And so you just have to find a human real in so that the reader is not reading a cliche because that's almost... That's almost tragic, right? If something that's very real and has affected many people, which is alcoholism and and uh, the, the the rage of their father, if you turn that into a cliche, you're kind of doing a disservice to everyone who's actually gone through that, and you're missing an opportunity to see some some of the humanity behind that. So I don't know. Now I'm truly babbling. That's <laughs> okay. Um, I think next up, you worked on the Spider-Man Doctor Octopus Year One miniseries. How was that originally pitched? I guess it was timed because it was around the time or the same year as the movie, Spider-Man 2. Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely because the movie was coming out and they, uh, Axel and Warren Simons came to me and they said that they, they just wanted to find a way to make Dr. Octopus scary or a villain or just really get to the core of why he was a villain. And and I think that I started looking at it and, you know, the first thing you do is you go back and you reread all of the old appearances that they were that that character was in. And I think that 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 obsession with radiation you know, it just suddenly leapt out at me that this man wanted to study radiation so badly that he was willing to sacrifice a piece of his humanity and actually become this monster. And so I sort of started reverse engineering that and was thinking about if these if these arms that he built were a way for him to, t- to touch highly radioactive materials, maybe the reason they were tied into his his spinal column were because he wanted an actual physical sensation. You know, he wanted to feel what radiation felt like. And then that, to me, that suggested a character that maybe has an intelligence that's high enough that he becomes almost alien, that, that it's an alien intelligence, and then that makes the character interesting in sort of a Hannibal Lecter way hmm. where I think that when you're watching Silence of the Lambs it's it, it, it is it's a lot of that same thing that you have with Elektra it's a lot of the, a lot of that oh what is going on in this person's brain who is thinking has a completely different value system than most of humanity and is much smarter than most of humanity what 
what is their perception of the world. How did you come to work on Fantastic Four Iron Man Big in Japan? Because I remember that when it first came out, and it was one of the, uh, it was definitely a strange book, but a, a, definitely a book that embraced a, a good deal of fun as well. What was it like working on the, the late Seth Fisher? Uh, yeah, that was, that was super fun. I think that, that was a totally artist-driven book, because I think that, you know, you see Seth Fisher's artwork, and as a writer, as an editor, as anyone in the industry, you wanted to work with him. You knew that this was a special talent. And so I think an editor at Marvel had basically gone after Seth Fisher and said, hey, what do you want to do? And he said that he wanted to do giant robots and giant monsters. (laughs) And and so that's, that's what was brought to me. And then I think that he read some of my stuff and so it was one of those situations where the artist was sort of driving it. Like, well, who who would you like to work with? And so they pitched me to him. He read some of my stuff. And I think just as luck would have it, we met at a convention as the conversation was going. And we hit it off. And I think he liked that I, that I was sort of young. You know, I was young at the time. And, and so I got the job. And then... It was just a super, super fun assignment where your job was to come up with crazy things for him to draw. And so I wanted to I wanted to challenge myself and to see how much of that crazy stuff I could pack in with while also keeping a coherent story. And I'm actually really proud of that book, not only because I, I think that I... I did come up with a bunch of crazy stuff and I'm really proud of a lot of the ideas in the book. And then the fact that that's all filtered through Seth Fisher and then it becomes something that, that is different. You know, it's different enough from what I wrote that it's, it's its own thing. It's sort of a fun thing for me to read because, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of that crazy formal stuff that he does where suddenly the characters are squatted, deformed versions of themselves or, you know, people's eyes are bugging out or um, that or that are not in the script that are that are just all him. I think my script was probably a little, you know, a little straight, more straightforward, a little probably a little less fun. And then he added this kind of wash of fun on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of its own thing, which I really like. And then it's just, it's fun to have that with him since he's gone, you know, which was a, a massive bummer, of course. Of course, yeah. Um, and now my uh, my former co-host uh, wanted to ask some questions about uh, Heroes for Hire. Uh, okay. he, he really dug your take on the book, especially the direction you were going with Humbug. Um, and he wanted to know if you had any more long-term plans for the character if the book hadn't ended. That's funny because I... I do know that I did, and somewhere out there is like, for a split second, no, not a split second, for a while they were going to do Daughters of the Dragon, which was going to be sort of a continuation of that story with Misty Knight and Colleen Wing and maybe another character. And I think there's even three pages out there that Clay Man drew that, where they were going to go find Tarantula again, I think, and pick her up. And, but I did, but I think, doesn't Humbug die at the end? 
Uh, I, I can't remember, to I be honest. He, I, think, I think he does. I think somebody kills him. I think Tarantula might kill him, and that's what she was she was messed up about at the beginning of Daughters of the Dragon. But no, maybe no, Shang-Chi kills him because Shang-Chi was having trouble with his with his murdering at the time. That was one of the the uh, plot points. But to, I'm sorry, a simple answer to your question is no, I did not have any plans, but if that second series had gone on long enough, I'm sure I would have brought him back in some regard. What was it about humbug, a, what was it about humbug that was fun to write? Um, I don't I don't know what what was fun to write about him. That was such a that was such a, a fun situation to be thrown in because uh, Jimmy Palmiotti and his partner and Justin Gray had done I think ten issues of that book. And then something had gone wrong. I think there was like a clash of personalities or something. And so they left the book having written having I think they had written the first issue of a three issue arc and that issue had been drawn but they were gone and I might have you know done the final polish on the script that makes sense that makes sense that goes to the artwork because you know when when I write a script and and many people must work this way is that I'll write the script but then when the art comes in I like to do another pass on the script because you want to see what the if the artist had any ideas or what the artist did, and just make sure that everything flows. And again, uh, check and see if some of the stuff you wrote is unnecessary. And if oh, oh I wrote this word balloon, balloon, but you get you get this idea from this art, you always get rid of your your words. And so I think that I had sort of the the outline for the next issue or maybe even the script for the next issue, but I was sort of allowed to do whatever I wanted. So I either ended the first, it was the one with the doom bot. It was a story with a doom bot. I, I finished that last issue or the last two issues sort of, uh, I think I did fully write the last issue, but the, the issue before that I was just rewriting the artwork that I had. And then after that, I was just, sort of stuck with these characters <laughs> and which was which was this just this bizarre mishmash of characters but then uh, that's uh, that's actually really really fun because then then that's that's exactly the question I'm asking myself I'm like well what is fun about writing humbug and I guess I just said well if this guy can talk to bugs and he's obviously sort of a social misfit and only the bugs want to talk to him and then if we get to the savage land and he meets the a place where the bugs have been able to continue to evolve i wanted him to have some bizarre experience there that sort of just amps his powers up and because i think bugs communicate a lot through scents and these pheromones they put out and i think at some point the bugs are these big giant hyper-evolved bugs on the Savage Land are trying to communicate with him, but they can't, the only way they can is to sort of give him some of their brain juice and he has to drink it, and then that sort of transforms him, and I think that's something that I, it kind of goes back to the, 
Doc Ock of it all, which is that that allowed me to give Humbug a different perspective and an intelligence that is alien, and then ask how that works. You know what what does what does happen when the human brain has to think like an insect? And I think I have scenes later where you know because it tied into World War Hulk where where he has to he has to sneak into this because one of uh, one of the Hulk's lieutenants was an insect and he has to sneak into his, through his uh, that the insectoid minions and he kills a few of them and covers himself in their pheromones so that or covers all of them into pheromones so that or pheromones so that they they they'll be invisible to these minions and then one of the character turns around and the, and he's actually eating one of these insectoid dead bodies and which is really freaky but then he's able to say but as an insect you know when an insect sheds their skin or anything they they consume it because protein is very valuable to them so if he was thinking like an insect he wouldn't it would be disrespectful to let that protein go to waste <laughs> so so he just gave me an opportunity to think like an insect and think what would it because I do think that nature and this kind of ties into the shed storyline is that that nature is if you think about it one way it's such a beautiful tranquil place and then if you think about it another way it is such a harsh black and white place where you're either predator or prey and you do anything you can to survive and so it's always it's it's kind of fun for me to confront the reader, confront myself, and confront characters with how brutal nature really is. Okay. Well, I want to move on for a second to uh, to Batlin Jack. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think I told you off podcast, it's probably my favorite uh, Daredevil miniseries I've ever read. Um, I just Very I, flattering. I've always enjoyed it. I mean, I think part of what I loved about it is that we never really got a good focus just on Jack before. Um, right. It was really the first time that he felt like a real character and not just a prop in Matt's own story. Uh, and you and you fleshed out his world. Um, you made Josie, like you gave Josie a backstory, which was tragic and sad uh, as well, uh, knowing what happens to her later. Um, how did this this miniseries even come about? How did you end up getting paired with Carmine? You know, I, I just want to know, how, how did this happen? Uh, this this is another super interesting one, and it's making me realize how many times I was sort of brought brought in as a, you know, after the fact. Carmine had actually, I think he had actually, he had thumbnailed an entire four issue miniseries, and that and that was brought to me. Wow. And yeah, and. He, so I have to give credit, a, a lot of credit to him for, for so, so the Josie and Matt Murdock romance was super, super big and a part of that. And so I was brought in and my job was to, so, so I had carte blanche to rewrite this, but whatever, but Carmine is like a superstar, you know, in Italy, he's a massive superstar and we wanted to be respectful to what he was trying, to, what what he was doing with his series. And so I was trying to use as much of what he had or what he was doing. And he 
wanted to show a couple weeks in the life of Matt Murdock, or he wanted to really feel like you knew Matt Murdock. And so a lot of the characters that are in there, I kept, and then I just tried to find a hook that would make it interesting for me, and I think that hook was, why why would a man with a, with a blind son who is very young, you know, at, at one point it's so heroic that he wouldn't throw that fight at the end, but knowing that that would lead to his death, like what what allowed him to that seems like a very selfish decision to me that he would he would leave his son without a father or a mother you know for his pride basically um, and what what how how could i maybe make that make sense in a character way and i thought that if i could show that maybe matt murdock did sense that his son was super strong and super competent or, or actually knew that, then that would allow him to say, oh, my son is a man now. I'm allowed to be my own man again because my role as a father has been completed. I'm allowed to to act as my own person and the decision I'm making is to not throw, you know, not be a sellout for this last fight. And so that was the goal. But then there was a lot of, scenes that we wanted to use of him talking to Josie and whatnot. So that made me really dig in on Josie and try to find a backstory for her and allowed me to sort of process a lot of, you know, I was, I was raised religiously. So it allowed me to process a lot of the, the thing, the, the, the weird things religion makes people do as well sometimes, you know? And so there was a lot of, a lot of, uh, I think that's where battling Jack's, you know, he sort of was standoffish with Josie because his his old his ex wife or the or the woman he loved had run off to a convent, and he had sort of gotten this message that their love was bad or sinful, and so he was sort of messed up because of that. And so I played with that a little bit as well. So there were a lot of kind of kind of deeper things that I wanted to do that were all filtered through what Carmine was trying to do. And so that became another book where I can't take complete credit for it. It was sort of me and the artist playing off each other to get to a, uh, you know, to get to a final product. I do have to give you credit though, as you just said that coming up with the concept of, you know, Jack letting himself, well, winning because he knows that Matt's going to be okay. Like when that moment happens in the book, it's it's a really game it's a big game changer obviously because it changes everything you know about why Jack dies but it, it floors me that it's no one, I mean it will never it's it hasn't been discussed anywhere else it's like it only it only it only occurs in this book but it's such a great beautiful moment um, that you that you put together and and Carmine's art in that sequence is amazing as well and even just the last couple of pages when you know he's getting beaten and he knows that his, that his his son's going to be all right and he's like yeah you go see my boy and he just starts laughing and then you just yeah yeah like it's it's chilling but extremely well done um, and so I'm just surprised that no one else had ever thought to you know kind of push that f- story forward with Jack that he actually did know and that it wasn't just you know, pride. Because when you th- when to hear you talk about it, you're 
absolutely right. Without knowing that piece of Jack, you know, knowing that Matt's going to be okay, it is a selfish move. I mean, it's yeah. we're led to assume that it's you know it's this heroic moment, but there's also the 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 other side, which is then he leaves his son fatherless. Yeah, and, and if that decision is made as a father, that is the shittiest father decision you could possibly make. But if it's but if it's made as, just as a as a as a man, you you can buy it. You know, you can say, okay, yeah, as a as a human being, he has a he, you you ob- you absolutely have the right to decide how much of yourself you'll give up before you'd rather just die. You know, and he reaches his breaking point. But as a father, um, and I have no children, so feel free to correct me. <laughs> but as a father, but as a father, it seems like if you're taking that role seriously, sometimes you do have to make sacrifices, and sometimes you do have to maybe put yourself in, in a degrading situation in order to protect your children. Where do you um, would you would you ever want to write a follow up just about like what happens to Josie? Even like I when I read the book, it just makes me sad that we never get to see what happens with her afterwards. Like it actually made me invest in her as a character, whereas before we knew of her because Frank Miller used her as a you know the older beaten down version of that character. But you use this, especially the way Carmine draws her, so full of innocence and hope. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, and it really makes you invest in her as a character. And then when the book ends, you know how Matt turns out, but and mm-hmm. you, you you know how Josie ends, but you don't really know how it gets there. Yeah, and I don't know if I'd want to write that because I don't see I don't see a world where that is a fun story. No, it's probably depressing. And, 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 and I mean, not fun to read, but I mean, like you know, like you'd have to show this this woman full of life being. You know what happened to her, and what happened to her probably isn't super pleasant. You know, but it would be a fun challenge. That that would be a fun challenge. Was uh, was it Carmen's idea or your idea to kind of make each issue uh, around? I think that was my idea, and I just I just want to preface all of this that this was a long time ago, <laughs> and if I'm ta- if I'm taking credit for someone else's shit, I'm not doing it intentionally. But I do. I think. That that was my idea. That that okay, and yes, I think it was my idea because I think the fight was all at in Carmine's thumbnails. The fight took place all at the end. It was it was issue four. Issue four was the entire fight, and I thought it might be more. Um, I don't know. It would just give a thematic sort of so, uh, you know sort of cohesion to. To those flashbacks, if it, it, well, so and it also allowed you to have a, a man getting the shit kicked out of him at the beginning and end of each of these issues, <laughs> which gave you, which gave you like some high drama. If say issue two had a little bit more of Josie and Matt or, or, or Josie and Jack just hanging out, mm-hmm. you know, you could sort of buy, you could buy yourself more quiet moments. By working out, working out a uh, structure that allowed you to have these big, super dramatic moments on either end of them. Well, it also gives it more of a cinematic flair because, uh, I mean, how many times have we seen something like that in cinema where we'll kind of we'll have the main thrust of the action and then we're kind of flashing back in the middle of that as well. So I think it kind of achieves yeah. that as well. And they're both they're both informing each other, which is which is fun and makes everything more interesting. 
Uh, what was it like um, to work on the New Mutants and kind of bring the, the, the kind of the core classic team back together? That that's sort of fun because I do think that my mind works in a certain in a certain way where if if I'm working on the New Mutants, I want to. I want to give the fans that classic version that they liked. You know, the the version that made New Mutants a classic, I want to give people more of that and play with that stuff that they like. So it was it was an interesting interesting challenge for sure. I, I re, you know, did my research because I wasn't a super big New Mutants fan at all. I just knew that New Mutants had a special place in a lot of people's hearts, and so I took it upon myself to become a New Mutants fan. And I just read everything that the you know I read every issue of New Mutants. I read the stuff that led up to it. I read the crossovers. I read you know all of Inferno. I don't know if you've read it. Did you? I don't know what your backstory is. Like, when did you start reading? Did you read Inferno when uh, you were a kid? Or? I Yeah, I don't know if I was necessarily a kid. I was probably in my teens by the time I actually went back and read it, but I have read okay. a lot of that stuff. I mean, a lot of it, I I don't want to talk shit, man, but a lot of, I mean, that Inferno series was crazy. <laughs> I, it, it, I, re, reading that as an adult was an eye-opener about the... Uh, the beer goggles you have on sometimes when you're a kid because that story could not have been more cohesive and cool and make more sense when I was a kid. And then I could barely wrap my mind around it, um, rereading it. But but I think at a certain point, you're, you're referencing people's memories of these stories more than you're actually referencing the story of itself. So... So that was interesting going into New Mutants where I wanted I wanted it to be a, a book for the fans. But you, you're there's always a, a pressure, you know, to make it wider for everyone. And I, I recently went back and reread the first five or the first story arc. And I remember when I was writing it and uh, Nick Lowe, who was the editor, was totally down with this. He backed me. He was like, let's let's write this for people that know these stories, you know, Wikipedia exists. If you, <laughs> if you have, if you have questions and I, and I'm sure you know this when, when I was a kid, I, I, it never really bumped me when I didn't know what had come before when they referenced a story I didn't know. I just thought it was cool. You know, I thought it was like, Oh, there's more going on here than I could see. I wonder what that was. And then, if you really liked the story, you'd go back and you'd figure it out. You'd find those issues and you'd read them. Absolutely. I remember growing up, that's, I actually, I mean, I started reading comics in like the mid nineties, which was an incomprehensive time. Um, yeah. but I mean, I, as a kid, first of all, you just kind of fill in the blanks anyway, cause you're just kind of reading thinking everything's cool. Uh, so you're kind of filling in the blanks anyway. And then you'd have the narrative boxes saying like this happened in this issue and Oh, this person met this person. Then and you're like, you got the sense of history. Uh, with the sense of history, exactly, and exactly. that was that was more of it. So some and and once in a while, it's funny. Earlier, you mentioned Wizard back when Wizard was a thing, and they would have you know. I remember getting like a Spider-Man special publication from Wizard and being like, "Here's all the special things that happened with Spider-Man in the last thirty years." And I'm like, I didn't know these, so I would yeah. read these and it would be like a hundred things that have happened, and so that that's just how fans used to digest that kind of stuff way before things like Wikipedia, in some ways, kind of ruined it. I mean, I say ruined because it's it's nice as a resource that you can kind of see all this stuff, but 
there's something about kind of piecing together the mythology and finding pieces different places and making it work in your head as opposed to just, oh, here's everything, I'm going to read it all. <laughs> You're absolutely right. And then on top of that, you know, some of these stories, when you read it as a one-sentence summary in Wikipedia, it sounds like the dumbest shit you've ever read in your life, you know, because because it's been simplified where where the actual comic book story, it's like, you know, no, 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 it's actually really cool. It actually makes a lot of sense, but if you just read the summary, you're like, oh, that, you know, I even read some summaries of my stuff, and I'm like, oh, that, that does, that sounds absolutely insane and terrible, but I, I'd hope that if you actually read it, you know, it wouldn't be quite as bad. But I do think when I read that four issues, maybe I maybe I was a little too far over on leaning on continuity and hoping that the 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 reader knew enough. But but I do think that. And then so there was that the first four issues where I think what I thought I was doing and what I was actually doing might have been different. And then. Nick Lowe came to me and said, okay, we're doing the uh, Necrotius storyline. Would you, you know, and he asked me, would you like to be a part of that? And I just think that for me, that's such a part of the X-Men lore or being an X-Men writer is playing with those big events, you know, that that's, that's how I remember the X-Men. I remember the X-Men being drawn into Inferno and, and having these big events. So, I definitely wanted to do it, and then I felt like those those Necrotia issues were like by far the weakest issues of my run because I, I just could not I could not find an organic way to, to plug into that story. And I think that those comics have fun moments and fun character moments that I'm proud of, but um, as as stories, they don't quite work. But then I think that building towards – once we got the, the Limbo children in there, I'm actually really proud of that last six or seven issues I did where all of that stuff kind of culminates and the Legion stuff comes together, the Inferno babies show back up. And I felt I, – I don't know. I just reread that a couple months ago, and I felt that every character um, – Except maybe for Magma, who I could never figure out. But every, almost every character gets like a really poignant ending for their uh, for their arc over that series. Which of the new mutants do you think you had the the best handle on in terms of the voice? I think I had the best handle and who else? You'll notice the theme here, but I brought him back in a way that now he was, his powers were all weird, and he and now he had an alien intelligence mm. that set him apart from the rest of the team and made him see in a complete in a completely different way that was hard to figure out. The, and so um, I liked writing him a lot because I was just doing that thing that I al- <laughs> that I always do that I like to do. It's funny, just as you were saying who your favorite was or the voice you got best, uh, your your connection actually went out and we missed it. Oh, okay. So we heard you talking about it, but didn't hear who it actually was. Oh, okay. I, well, I think that the one I got the best was Danny. Okay. 
and and maybe Shan too. I, I liked her a lot, but then I was I was just saying that the but I also enjoyed writing Doug because I did that thing that I do w- 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 that goes back to the Doc Ock and uh, the bu- uh, uh, I'm going to call him the Bug Guy because I can't remember Humbug Humbug. Where I gave I gave Doug sort of that you know he came back to life and that experience being dead and then being brought back as sort of a a, a as, as a robot sort of gave him that alien intelligence that I like to write where he saw the world in a different way. How did you become part of the uh, I guess I forget the name of it but the the webheads I guess the uh, the. Oh, the Trust. Yeah, how did that come about? Because that, that's that was a pretty high profile, exciting gig. I yeah, hope so, anyway. <laughs> no, it was, it was, it was definitely exciting for me, and I think that I owe that all to Steve Wacker, who from that point forward was sort of with Nick Lowe. He was sort of my editor at at uh, Marvel. You know, I think that Steve liked my stuff, liked working with me. So a lot of the stuff that, that went forward came out of that relationship with Steve. You know, you know. I mean, Steve's the guy that that allowed me to work with Joe Matarera, who is like the white whale of comic book artists. You know, the fact that I got to do six issues with Joe Matarera is amazing. And I sort of owe that to Wacker. And I think it was because... And I don't remember if it was a lot of my work or if he just read something or or a particular thing that he liked. Maybe it was Spider-Man Doc Ock, but they had just they had just hired him away from D.C. And I think he had been reading my stuff at D.C. And I was just one of the guys that he that that in the back of his head, he said, hey, if I ever get a chance to work over at Marvel or with this guy, I'd like to work with him. So I was definitely the least experienced person brought onto that team. And I think it was, it was all uh, Steve Wacker lobbying for me. Now it's interesting that while you're part of the team, you got to work with uh, Chris Piccolo a few times. Yeah. And I mean, when you work with Chris Piccolo once, you're definitely going to lobby as hard as you can to work with him again because the man is, uh, you know, he's a genius. I, I would, if someone told me I had to only work with him for the rest of my life, I would definitely do that. Him and uh, Tim Townsend, his anchor, they're just, they're just, I, I just can't take my eyes off of their stuff. So that was a super, super big privilege. And, and you know, it was a big reason why that first Spider-Man story I did popped so much and I think that did that did do a lot for me people seem to respond to that story uh, a lot and I think it was just a, a lot of it had to do with those stark images that Bacello drew of Spider-Man out in a blizzard mm-hmm. no it was it was definitely it was very arresting visually mm-hmm now, when you wrote Shed, was there any resistance um, from editorial on how far you took the lizard? No, because that that was that was the goal, you know. We we when we started when we started that relaunch, the idea which um, which was going to have some strikes against it, 
you know, to begin with, because it was coming off, you know, a very controversial this uh, storyline that was sort of that you know there were forces at work forcing that storyline to happen that that maybe weren't the you know creative forces, and so we kind of had the card stacked against us. But Steve, which I thought was cool, he really wanted us to have our own identity, so he wanted to keep those villains, those main villains, off the table for as long as we could to just see what we could do. And then when we brought those villains back, it, it, it just had to feel big. And so that was the goal, was to do something big and crazy with the lizard. And so there, I don't remember getting any resistance from anything. And then I remember that that idea to kill Billy, which was Kurt Connor's son, that came from a... I think that was actually a call I was on with Joe Kelly, and me and him were talking about the the story. And, I mean, I love Joe Kelly to death. Like, I think I had actually... Uh, there was a chance that I wasn't going to do any more Spider-Man because I had gotten busy with something after my first Pacello arc, and I think I did a one-shot after that with the Punisher. And then I thought, well, maybe I'm just done with Spider-Man. And then I read Joe Kelly's arc that he did with the hammerhead with Chris Pacello as well. And just the way Joe Kelly's able to do to do that where the comic is funny and then suddenly it's really scary and then suddenly it's really dramatic. That was super inspiring to me and made me want to get back into the game. And so I was I had met Joe at the at the latest conference and we had just said that we should you know we should we should all keep in touch and, and like bat stories around with each other. And he just wanted to be super collaborative. So I ended up calling him and we were talking and we were talking about how far we wanted to push it and how, how we wanted to make it, make it clear. I mean, we just could not end another lizard story with Kurt Connors humanity winning out and, and him seeing something that bring Kurt, that brings Kurt Connors to the forefront that just, we just didn't see that as acceptable because it just seemed like it had been done so many times before. And I hate giving him credit because I love, I love the idea so much and I thought it was so powerful. But he had, he said, he just blurted out, man, I wish, I wish they would let, let you just kill Billy, you know, so that wasn't even an option. And that just got my wheels turning because if you could do that, then it would say to the reader, this story is not going to end in the way that you think it's going to end. And then I think I pushed it a little further by having Madame Webb see a vision of how the story was supposed to end. And she, and the, the reader was actually able to see that the story, without the villains interfering, the story would have ended with Spider-Man doing the thing that he always does which is appealing to Kurt Connors and Kurt Connors not being able to hurt his son and Kurt Connors winning in the end. And by the end of the second issue, we were able to say, sorry, that's not going to happen. This is going to be a different version of the lizard. Well, it definitely, it definitely worked. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm super proud of that. They've never walked uh, back from it. Like they definitely like that. That's what happened. Yeah, yeah, and I, 
think I just saw that they're they're doing something. They're doing something where a bunch of dead characters are coming back, so he might be coming back. But but I don't know. And and then that was just another opportunity for me to to explore things that are moral in the animal kingdom are immoral for humans and why is that and why are some things so disturbing to us and where where did this sense of morality come from which i think is is a very is something that you could study your entire life and not really wrap your head around we're going to try and wrap up but there's still so much i wanted to ask you about but uh i want to ask you about venom dark origin uh they mm-hmm. did they did with uh i guess angel medina uh where did that kind of miniseries come from was it something that you had been wanting to do or is that just kind of pitched to you that was pitched to me because i had done a spider-man doc ock and maybe maybe that was coming out when spider-man 3 was coming out i think it came out a year and a half later a year and a half later okay so maybe not but maybe it was one of those that took a while to do but yeah it was, yeah, it was it was Warren Simons, it was my editor on Spider-Man Doc Ock, he came to me and said, hey, let's, you know, let's do it again, let's do the same thing with Eddie Brock, and so I tried to do the same thing, try to ask myself who I thought Eddie Brock was, and unfortunately Eddie Brock's another character where I think many different writers have many different ideas of who Eddie Brock is. You know, there's some writers who see him as a more sympathetic character or as a more normal, rational character. And I just, you know, I, I just saw him as the character that I was first introduced to, which was that scary, psychotic guy who, who was a liar. And, you know, the, the stuff that was done by David Michelinie and Todd McFarlane back in the day and so I wanted to explore what that type of person was like as a child and in college and their relationships with uh, with their loved ones and women and and then and then I, but I, unfortunately I think Angel Medina because he is such a uh, kinetic artist you know I think he was a little bummed out with uh by how, well, you know, you know, I don't think Angel Medina is best served writing scenes of, of suburban unrest, you know, of a dinner table scene. And I totally, totally get that, you know. And so then we were able to, like towards the end, I tried, I, you know, I was more actively trying to give this poor bastard something to draw that he could really sink his teeth into. And so it became, you know, it became more of an action-y thing towards the end of it. It's interesting you say that because, yeah, I was, I was rereading it in preparation for our discussion and it definitely, it felt like there was a kind of a shift and I can kind of see it as you're talking about, you know, kind of making it more for the artist. And as you said, there's different things that you've written where you've tried to, you know, start steering it towards what the artist can draw best and it does definitely feels like that's where the series ends up going, where you have even the introspective moments of, you know, Eddie first getting the symbiote plays off very bombastically, very uh, larger yes. than life in terms of the actual, you know, it's things going on in his mind, but you play it up in a very big way. Yes, and that was absolutely 
a reaction to to what to what Angel wanted to do, and I totally respected what he was asking for, and and I think at the same time, what uh, I don't think I think he was probably voicing something that Venom fans would also voice. You know, fan, fans of Venom and Carnage and these symbiote stories. These are big bombastic stories. They're not. They're not dark character studies, you know. So he was, in a way, he was tra- he was really getting us back on track because I was looking at it from a Spider-Man Doc Ock, which I felt had been received very well. So I was like, well, I'm going to do more of that. I'm going to do more of the of the super, you know, like the horror of everyday life, the horror of your childhood and whatnot. And I think it, it wasn't a terrible idea to sort of nudge it over the bombastic way. And, and I think you summed it up the best. You can either show Eddie Brock first getting the symbiote in a boring way, or you can have it, you know, shoot into his eyeball and then have him fight two cops afterwards, you know, which gave, which gave um, Angel more to do. And, and he totally kills it, you know. He, it's, it's amazing when he does it. And, and I think that also freed me up because as a writer, I, I always, you know, some of those big bombastic moments, they take up more space. And if they're not super character motivated, I feel like it can sometimes be the, the instinct is, oh, you're being lazy because, you know, in comics, you're getting a page rate mm-hmm. and a, a splash page, you know, it, a double page splash the actual time you take writing that page is probably five minutes, you know? So you start feeling like, oh, I I need to pack this with more stuff. There's a lot of crazy, weird writer stuff going, you know, neurotic, unhealthy writer stuff going through your head all the time, which is why I was so goddamn slow and probably should not be writing comics. When when writing Dark Origin... um... It, it, it's definitely it's an interesting read, and I, I what was it like kind of playing within the raindrops and kind of showing scenes from you know the original Sin Eater story, which is again you know such a highly regarded Spider-Man story, and then also you know tweaking and going in and out of what we actually saw on panel in Amazing Spider-Man three hundred. What was it like kind of playing in that wheelbox in that sandbox, I should say? It, it was it was fun, but it was also very hard because it was fun to see that stuff again but by the time we got to the end of dark origin you are just seeing something that you've already seen Hmm. you know which was very hard which was felt very strange but i didn't know how else to end that because the, the story i was telling sort of needed to wrap up in that moment the same way that that it needed to wrap up, that David Michelinie's story needed to wrap up in Amazing Spider-Man 300. So I, I guess I'd have to read it again to answer that question, but I don't think it was a very fun problem to have. Hmm. I think it was, it was very much like, how do I do this? Dear God, I am just rewriting, literally just rewriting something that somebody has already done. You know, when, when they're in that bell tower... Yeah. And you're you're rewriting stuff that you've already seen. And so 
you're, you're trying to add meat there and trying to make your the themes that you started in your story culminate in a way without damaging that. And I, like I said, I can't remember if I pulled it off or not or how, how I even tried to do that. But I know that it was a very big concern for me. Oh, when I reread it, I, I, what I liked as kind of the thorough line throughout the series is the uh, how Eddie Brock, when he's a kid and then when he's, a, when he's older, how he approaches lies. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that that's I think how you kind of stuck the landing there was that because at the ending it's the idea of him telling himself that the symbiote won't betray him and it's just it's easier that way so it's ending on a lie and the series right. and the series also begins with Brock you know trying to be the hero and telling a lie so that he can be in the in you know in, in the good graces and people can view him nicely so it's it's an interesting way and obviously everything with the sin eater again the idea of manipulating the truth and what a lie really means so I, I think yeah. you did. You did kind of nail that the idea of what lies really mean, and and people probably weren't expecting that to be the kind of the the undercurrent of a Venom story, but right. it, but it does work in a big way. Yeah. Oh, well, that's that's good to hear because I think that sounds like another another cliche, which is villains take the easy way out, right? Like here, it's hard to be a, a good guy, and it's easier to be a bad guy. And I think I was trying to just explore that idea like why is it easier and why what about taking the easy way out makes you a villain and i think that i yeah and and lies are probably the first get out of jail free card that children learn right Mm -hmm. like like that's what's so dangerous about them is and especially if you grow up in a home where being in trouble is a massive deal like, like there's li- there, there's less understanding um, about that that children will be children. That, you know, I think that, I think that's where you really build your your grade A good liars because a kid learns that if they can just convince someone that that this reality they've made up is true, it avoids this massive amount of pain. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting about the way you wrote Eddie as well is that, you know, we start the book on a lie, and yet when he's watching TV with his dad, he's he's able to spot lies in, in other places. So it's just so right. interesting that, you know, he can't kind of call himself out on his own bullshit. Yeah, yeah, which I think, I think that's the other, the other dark path you go down when you get to be a great liar is the self-deception, you know, mm-hmm. you, I think you get good at lying to yourself as well. And these lies that you start weaving become reality, and you end up really doing damage to yourself. I want to ask about Nova, because you did an, one arc on the Sam Alexander Nova book. What, mm-hmm. I guess the, 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 the first question is, was it meant to be longer? I don't think that it was. I think that... So I had pretty much... I had started working on I started directing Robot Chicken at that time. Okay. And directing that show just ended up being, you know, one of those sort of 24-hour a day jobs where you're you're just doing it all the time and then you go to sleep and you're dreaming about it and you don't really have time for much else. So I had I had sort of told Steve that I needed some time like I couldn't do comics. And then he came out to LA and we had dinner. And it, he just caught me. He caught me at the right time where I had just wrapped Robot Chicken, 
and needed didn't know what I was going to do for the next couple months. You know, just didn't have ways to make money basically. And so he said that Jeff Loeb was finishing his arc and maybe I wanted to do that. And so I took a look at what Jeff had done and I thought it could be, would be fun and you know, I missed it. I missed writing the comics, so I I hopped onto that. And but I do think it was it was always the understanding that it was a five issue run or a four issue run or however long it ended up being. What um what about Nova kind of worked for you, even even just as a kind of a spot assignment, or was it really just, I need work and that character will work? Yeah, I, that's, a, that's a great question. I, I, I say that as someone who originally, when the Sam Alexander Nova book came out, I was very skeptical, and I remember enjoying Jeff Loeb's run on it a lot, and then also really dug your stuff, and I've actually become a huge fan of the character, but I remember when the character first came out being very skeptical because uh, I was yeah. a big, big fan of Richard Ryder, I didn't really think they needed a new Nova. But then something about this this kid really worked for me. So that that's why I ask. Yes, and I think that I think it was very simple, and that I think I read what I think I read what um, Jeff Loeb had done, and and it was very obvious that this. Uh, how often do you get to write the character as they are learning about their powers? You know, so I'm sure you read Ultimate Spider-Man, and that was such a fun book because you got to see this kid becoming Spider-Man or learning new things about himself and his powers and what having powers meant. And so I think that is what I initially hooked into. And it was a bit, you know, it was sort of cynical. It was like, oh, this is a way for me to to be able to write uh, Ultimate Spider-Man back when it first started but i can I, I can do it now you know it's it's it, it would be super fun to be able to do that and you don't get opportunities every day to write about the formative years of a superhero especially in this day and age when so often you are writing about uh, heroes that have massive backstories and massive amounts of continuity and their character is locked in tight you know who that character is and you're expected to, to color in the lines. Here, this character was still figuring out who it was, and I thought that sounded fun. Now, uh, now, have you kind of moved on from comics now? Are you officially retired as a comic book writer? Where are we going to have you come back? Yeah, it, it's I. That's very. It's a very depressing subject because I do. I do want to come back, but but writing is just so – it just takes me a long time, and there's a lot of um, procrastinating. There's a lot of – you know, because I'm a bit of a perfectionist, and I and sadly, I'd rather not turn something in when I said I was going to than turn in something um, that I think is bad. And, and then I get in my own head, and I get super crazy – and it's a, it's a very isolating job where now I'm doing Supermansion for Crackle and that's all about writing in a room with other funny people and trying to make each other laugh all day. And I do go, you know, I do go just as crazy with those stories, but I can never, it, it never allows me to get as down the rabbit hole 
as me in my home office at three o'clock in the morning asking myself if this this issue of Nova number three is good enough. You know, it's like I, I just drive myself crazy. And then towards the end of it, I, I just felt like I was just, uh, you know, you just you get kind of sick of uh, of bumming people out and letting them down. Like Steve Wacker, I love that guy to death. We're still he lives out here now, and we're actually really good friends. And it's like I was, you know, when you know that you, because I know Nova Five came in super late, or Nova Six, the last issue of my run, and just knowing that you're sort of making your friend's life a lot harder than it needs to be. Um, I don't know. It just started wearing on me. And so I, I love comics so much and I love writing them. Well, I love having written them so much and I'm super proud of everything I did, but I, and constantly over the last three years, I'm constantly trying to adjust my writing process so that someday I would be able to come back and write comics and have fun doing it. And if I ever, if I ever do believe that I have fixed these these issues that make it so hard on me, I would come back in a second. But I was staring down the the last, you know, I, I wrote comics for what, 13, you know, 12, 13 years. And when you've done something for 12 years and you're constantly trying to make it so that it's easier on you and you've tried really hard and really sincerely for 12 years and have not been able to do it, I figured at some point maybe you have to take a step back and say, maybe I can't do it. Is there, what would, if you were to come back, who's that character that you, you, you never got a chance to touch but you'd love to if you, just for once? Who's that character for you? Well... I mean, you've touched a lot of the big ones, right? So, well, yeah, and 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 that's and that's was really the hardest decision I made is when I did make that decision that I couldn't do it anymore. Is right when that Electra ongoing was happening hmm. and and was announced. And so, if if any character could bring me back, it's still Electra. Like, I still feel like I have Electra stories to tell. But then. Um, you know they've tried that, and and it's really hard. It's really hard to make an Electra um, ongoing series sell. You know, I thought that last Electra ongoing was really good, and it I you know and it still got canceled. So I don't know if that'll ever happen again. But I still have Electra stories to tell, and you know, seeing Spider Man in Civil War was really fun, and. Being able to see, you know, that movie version of Spider-Man that you feel like is is close to the one that that you like writing, um, you know, I, I always have more Spider-Man stories to tell as well. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us today, Zevin, talking about your career in comics. It's been, uh, for, well, for me as a, as a big fan of a lot of your work, it's been really enjoyable. Thank you so much. Yeah, I really uh, really enjoy talking to you, man. Thanks for uh, thanks for thinking of me.